Hey, uh, we're going to go this morning to the book of Numbers to start with, and we'll get there in just a moment. So if you want to go ahead and turn to Numbers chapter 16, uh, we will uh, engage that in a moment. Uh, I want to talk about spiritual leadership this morning, spiritual leadership in the home primarily. Um, Since we have been talking about marriage all weekend, this is a topic that we haven't really fully delved into, and so I wanted to get into it this morning, uh, not because this is something I do well, but because this is something I don't do well. Um, This is something I don't feel like I have a clear picture on um, and didn't grow up with a lot of great examples of of what spiritual leadership actually looks like, what it should look like in the home, what it should look like in marriage and parenting. Um, And and I'll tell you a little story to get started with. When I was probably 21 years old or so, uh, I was in college at Louisiana Tech. Um, I was already pastoring a a small church at this point. I, I started pastoring when I was 19. And um, I was also heavily involved in a campus ministry at Tech. And one of the guys in our campus ministry had invited me and a bunch of other guys to his parents' lake house for the weekend, um, just to get away, have fun on the lake. And something happened that weekend. I saw something that is like forever etched in my memory. Um, I wanted to share it with you this morning. I I remember we got in uh, late on like a Friday night and my friend's parents were also spending the weekend at the lake house. It was like a big place. And I will never forget, uh, Saturday morning, I woke up and I came downstairs and I found this guy's dad uh, sitting at the breakfast table. And this is a guy who's probably in his 50s at the time. I, I didn't know him well at all, but I came downstairs and I found him sitting at the breakfast table uh, with a yellow legal pad and his Bible open. And he was just up early in the morning studying the scriptures. And this may sound crazy to you, but I don't know that I had ever seen that before in my life. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up going to church all the time. Um, I I, I remember asking him, I I assumed he was like preparing to teach a Sunday school class or to teach a small group or something like that. I asked him what he was preparing for uh, because I'd seen that before, but he wasn't preparing for anything. He was just up studying the Bible because it was a part of his regular everyday rhythm. And, and up until that point in my life, I sadly had never seen like a, a, like a father figure doing that, just engaging the word of God. And, and so that may seem small to you, but for me, it was kind of revolutionary. And I remember thinking, that's the kind of dad I want to be. Um, I, I want to be the kind of dad who, when my kids get up in the morning, they find me already up, Bible open, engaging the Word of God and seeking to learn from it. And, and what I took away from that was that that must be what spiritual leadership looks like. Um, this guy is leading his family by example. And, and like I said, uh, like many of you, I haven't had a lot of great examples in my life of, of what exactly that looks like. What, is it, what does it mean to lead your family? Um, what do you do exactly? I've seen it within the walls of the church, um, pastors and youth leaders and that kind of stuff, but what about everything else? How do you lead your family? How do you lead your kids, uh, your spouse? Uh, Pastor John Piper received this question from one of his readers, and I think it's something that many of us could identify with. Uh, This person reached out to him and said, hello, Pastor John, my husband and I are still in the beginning stages of our marriage. Both of us were raised in Christian homes, but unfortunately, both of us had fathers 
who failed to lead the family spiritually. Our mothers did that job. Now, I desire my husband to lead our home spiritually, but we both don't know what that looks like. Does he lead prayer with me daily? Does he read the word with me daily? And what do you do with your family? And I think these questions are questions that many of us are asking, both men and women. What do we do? Um, and, and so let's go to the scriptures today and, and seek to discern God's intentions for us. Um, and we're starting today back in the Old Testament, and, and we're actually going to look at a passage of Scripture to begin with that we've seen uh, in our daily Bible reading plan. And if you're not uh, engaging our daily Scripture reading plan, let me encourage you to do that and to um, jump in with us where we are. Um, so at this point in the book of Numbers, chapter 16, the Israelites are in the middle of wandering in the wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula. They've been barred from entering the promised land of Canaan for 40 years because they didn't trust God enough to go into the land and just take it by force. Uh, they were scared. And, and so, um, since they've left Egypt... God has confirmed his covenant with Israel, the covenant they made way back in the book of Genesis with Abraham to give them this land and to make their nation flourish. And a part of this, God gives the people a moral, legal, and ethical code uh, that is usually just referred to as the law. The law is extremely detailed, and within it, God presents a picture of how he wants the people to organize themselves and how he wants them to live. And, and so, in a sense, you could call this God's design for the nation of Israel. Most importantly, the law was not simply about what God wanted the people to do. It was really about who God wanted the people to be. A people set apart uh, who were collectively pursuing his holiness. One of the things he says over and over again uh, in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Bible, is be holy because I am holy. This is like the, the continual message that he keeps repeating to them. And a big point of the law was that by following it, the Israelites would be naturally marked as a people who were different. So as a part of all of this, God pulls out one tribe, the Levites, and dedicates that tribe to laboring in the tabernacle, the place of worship, the place where sacrifice would be offered. Um, in laboring in the tabernacle, the, Levi, the Levites would literally be the ones who would like deconstruct and pack it up. It was like a tent. They would pack it up, and they were the ones who would actually kind of carry it and all of the elements inside of it uh, through the wilderness as they moved from place to place. Within that one tribe, God pulled out one family, the family of Aaron, uh, to be the priest. Uh, doing the work of leading worship through honoring the law and making sacrifice to God. The priests were mediators between God and man. Also, Aaron's brother Moses had special access to God. God would speak to him and he would hand down God's word to the people. So that's kind of what's going on here. This is God's design for the nation of Israel. This is how he set it up. But... Guess what? The people didn't always like the law. There were times when it felt oppressive to them because it pushed back against their sin nature, right? It pushed back against what they like wanted. So on many occasions, the people rebel. They turn to false gods. Uh, they do what they think is best. They act out of anger, out of frustration. It always ends badly. Like it always ends with severe consequences for the people, it's also worth pointing out that the law wasn't always what we would think of as like fair or equitable. 
in the sense that everyone did not enjoy the exact same level of access to God. Instead, access to God was largely reserved to Moses and to the priests. Hey, can I get the handheld mic up here? Oh, you have it? Awesome. So the law wasn't always fair uh, in the way that maybe we think of fairness um, or equity. Um, So look at number 16. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3. Now Korah, the son of Ishar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So, so this Levite named Korah, a laborer in the tabernacle, comes against Moses and says, who do you think you are? He says in verse 3, all in the congregation, meaning all of Israel, are holy. Not true. Like, not true. He says, every one of them. So why do you, Moses, exalt yourself? In other words, his contention was that Moses had, like, assumed power for himself. That that Moses had, in a sense, made himself the leader, and that it was ultimately Moses' fault that they were wandering in the wilderness, lacking many of the resources that they wanted. And so there was ultimately this plot to depose Moses as a leader and set up someone new. It was massively popular. It gained a lot of favor among the people. There were 250 tribal leaders on board with this plan. But what does Moses say? If you look down at verse 11, what Moses says in verse 11 is key. He says, listen, you haven't come against me. You haven't come against me. It is against the Lord that you have gathered together. You're not coming against me. You're coming against God and his plan, and his will. I'm not here because I assumed this position of power. I'm not even here because I wanted this. Go back in the story of Moses. Like, like he he resisted God's call to leadership. So you're not coming against me. You're coming against God and his plan. Why are we talking about this? Well, guess what? God still has a design plan, a will for you and your marriage and your family. And and here's what we have to get comfortable with. God's plan will always push back against popular culture. It will always fly in the face of mainstream ideology. It will always be viewed by others as backwards or silly or antiquated or unfair or offensive. The false gods of Egypt and Canaan were deeply appealing to the people of Israel because they weren't real. The false gods of Canaan and Egypt were deeply appealing to the people of Israel because they weren't real. They gave the people the feeling of religiosity while still allowing them to do whatever they wanted. And the same thing is still true today. 
So that's our backdrop this morning as we get into this. God has a design, a plan, a will for you, your family, your marriage. He has intentions for you. Uh, But we no longer live under this old covenant that we were just talking about. No, the scriptures tell us that we now live under a new covenant predicated not on a system of written laws, but instead constituted in the blood of Jesus Christ. And here's the difference. When we ask the question, how should we live, we don't arrive at an answer by going to a law book and looking up the answer. We arrive at the answer by looking to Christ and saying, how did he live? So what Jesus says in John 13, 15, he tells his disciples, this is the scene after he has just like washed their feet and they're confused. They don't know what he's doing. Jesus says to them, John 13, 15, for I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. And, and, and sometimes people take that in extremely literal ways. They think that Jesus is talking about literally washing people's feet, right? No, there's nothing wrong with that. But Jesus is speaking to something much more broad. Jesus is saying, my life has been an example to you. I've provided you with a model so that you might look to me and learn how to live your life. So when you ask what does spiritual leadership look like in your home, in your marriage, in parenting, in the church, in business, in teaching, in coaching, in life in general, the real question is actually who is Jesus and how did he live? If you want to know spiritual leadership, we answer the question who is Jesus and how did he live? And just like the Israelites, the first consideration is not simply, God, what do you want me to do? The first consideration really is, God, who do you want me to be? And that answer has not changed. God's desire is still that we would be a people who are set apart, pursuing his holiness, looking to Christ as our model, our example. So, so let's just tease that out a little bit this morning by talking about two words. They're not necessarily popular words. Submission and intentionality. Uh, We need to make friends, guys, with the word submission. It needs to become a word that produces joy and excitement and relief and peace within us. Because pursuing God, pursuing God's plan, pursuing God's intention, his design for our life begins with us all submitting to Christ. It begins with us laying our lives before Jesus It is only because of sin and the brokenness of our world that we would hear the word submit or the word submission and and that it would produce any sense of like anger or anxiety or tension within us. It's because of the sin of our world. It is only because of human sin that we have any negative association with that word. Because it's, it's us, not God, who has made submission into a word that can be linked to like violent oppression or, or selfish control. Israel was called to submit to God, and, and this should have been such a relief to them. Like it should have brought about a great sense of peace for the nation. He had saved them from 400 years of slavery. He had saved them from the pursuing armies of Pharaoh. He had saved them from starvation and thirst in the wilderness. He had done all of these things, and he had made incredible promises for their future. So why would you not give him everything? When he has done all of these things, and he's promised all of these things, why would you not submit 
to him fully? Why not trust him completely? Why not do what he says? And the answer is because we are broken. Because our world is broken. When we lose sight of everything that God has done and will do, and we turn to our own ways, things go south. So all of this begins, guys, with us first repenting, turning from thinking we can save ourselves or turning from thinking that we're smart enough to know the right path to be on, like literally turning from pursuing our own ways, repenting from that and pursuing Christ, pursuing new life, not just a life where we're more intelligent or a life where we um, can, can act better or be more moral. No, no, no. We're, we're turning from our life to the life of Christ. We're saying we can't save ourselves. We need a Savior, and, and, and we don't just need him to make us better. We need him to take on our sin fully. We need his righteousness, not some new righteousness that we produce. We need to take on his righteousness in order to be made right before a holy God. So all of this begins with us repenting and turning from our own path and submitting to Christ, taking your life out of your hands, putting it in the hands of Jesus. So think, think back to the scene of my friend's dad studying his Bible. That, that was a revolutionary scene for me. It was a revolutionary picture of spiritual leadership for me. But, but here's the thing. If, if underneath the outward action of just Bible study, if underneath that outward action, if there isn't a life submitted to Christ underneath that, then the outward spiritual actions can ultimately be rendered null and void. And, and I, I would say could actually drive your spouse and your children away from Christ. Does that make sense? So, so if there are all of these kind of like outward spiritual actions, but what's happening inside is an unregenerate, unrepentant heart, then the outward actions can be rendered null and void and could actually embitter the people around you towards Christ because what you're portraying out to them is not the gospel, it's hypocrisy and legalism. Does that make sense? So if all, of the, if, if all there was there, it was just Bible study and there's just nothing else, he's just a wretched, horrible person, but yet he gets up and reads the Bible every day, then what does that matter? What does that profit anybody? 1 Corinthians 13 basically says, look, you can do all of these great spiritual things. You can speak in tongues. You can prophesy. You can give away everything to the poor. But if you don't have love, you have nothing. And what is love if it isn't God himself? So if it isn't a life centered in Christ, you can do all of these great things. But what does it matter? What does it profit? So please, yes, study the scriptures in front of your family. But if they don't also see in you any attempt to actually live by the scriptures, to actually pursue Christ, then it's nothing. And so again, this begins with us repenting of trying to do our own thing, turning off the path that we were on, submitting everything to Christ, giving ourselves to them. And we do this not because we've been told to. We do this because of the example that he has given us. Jesus submitted himself to the Father. 
Again, he's provided us with a model to follow, and the model that he's given to us is a model where he submits himself to the Father. He said, I only see, only do what I see the Father doing. And in submission to the Father, he humbled himself and poured out his life for us. Just like God gave salvation from the Egyptians to the Israelites. God has given us salvation from sin and death through Christ. And Jesus modeled a life of humble submission to the Father. So if we want to practice spiritual leadership in our marriage, in our home, this is where it has to begin for us with repentance and submission to Christ. But, but here's the thing. It's impossible for us to talk about submission and not consider Ephesians 5. So if you would turn there with me real quick. Ephesians chapter 5. And we don't have time to like fully exegete this whole text this morning, but I do want to look at it briefly. Paul's talking to the church here in Ephesians as a group, and then he turns and talks specifically to wives and husbands. Let's start in verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So this is easily one of the more controversial passages in the New Testament. Why? Well, I think it's because much like the law of the Old Testament, when it bumps up against mainstream ideology, this teaching looks antiquated or, or silly or even offensive to us. But, but here, this morning, let me just encourage us to not um, miss the forest for the trees. Again, because of sin, we see the word submission, and I think many of us hear the word oppression or repression. But that's not at all what Paul is saying here, teaching and I would go so far as to say at the core, this really isn't a passage even about marriage. Um, I, I really feel like this is a passage about the example of Jesus that we are all supposed to be following. This is Paul interpreting the life of Christ to us so that we might live more fully in accordance with him. So here's the basic teaching here. From way back in the book of Genesis, the Bible has taught that something mysterious happens when a man and woman come together in marriage. And that mysterious occurrence is that the man and the woman become what scripture calls one flesh. So, so Paul is asking, what does that mean? What does it mean for a man and woman to become one flesh? And, and what he's saying is we find the answer to that in Christ. We find the answer to that mystery in Christ. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, we who submit to him in faith become united 
to him. And the metaphor that scripture uses is twofold. One metaphor is that we become his bride. The other metaphor is that we become his body with him as the head. In other words, in essence, through faith in Christ, we become one flesh with him as his body with him as the head. So Paul says God's intention for our marriages, God's design is that the marriage would be this like mini picture of the gospel, that your marriage would be this living picture of what Christ has done for the church. And this is no different from the book of Numbers. God's intention was that by following the law, the people of Israel would be a nation whose set apartness would declare the glory of God to the other nations and that they would be a refuge for the other nations, for, for, for widows and orphans and the poor and immigrants, that they would find hope, that they would find God through the nation of Israel as his people. And so within the marriage, this teaching begins not with wives, submit to your husbands. That's not where this starts. But verse 21, submit to one another. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Humble yourselves in front of one another. Serve one another in the same way that Christ has served you. And men, in the same way... Christ is the example of sacrificial love for the church in the same way that we look to him for our cues on how to live. Give him your whole life so that your wife and so that your children can look to you and find Jesus. Does that make sense? Submit your life to Christ so that others, and especially your family, can look to you and find Christ. When we find Christ, we find not only salvation, we find a seat at the banquet of God's kingdom. And and just so we're clear, Paul isn't telling us that men need to submit themselves to Christ. Um, just so that we can like claim something about him. Or just so that we can do outward spiritual things. He's calling us to submit ourselves to him so that we might be transformed. And in the same way, women are being asked to submit themselves to Christ and submit themselves to their husband. And the definition of submission comes not from our world, but from the example of Jesus. We learn how to submit and what submission is by looking to Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, account, not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so when we get to that word and we say, what does that look like? Again, who is Christ? And what did he do? And how did he live? And what Paul tells us is the submission that he modeled to us 
was that he completely humbled himself, even though he was entitled to far more. Even though he was God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. And instead, instead he poured himself out for us, even to the point of death, even to the point of death on a cross, a death that was heinous and violent and extreme, that he was willing to submit himself even to that point. And so when we ask, what does that look like? That is the answer. That is what it looks like. So men, if you're, if you're like going rogue in, in like selfishness and sin, if you're doing what you want or what you think is best rather than seeking to pursue the likeness of Christ, well, there's a significant problem there. That's, that's not what we've been called to. That'll blow things up. Ladies, if you're doing what you want or what you think is best rather than seeking to pursue the likeness of Christ, then there's a significant problem. And if we're together, men and women, if we're not seeking to submit to one another, if we're not seeking to pursue the likeness of Christ in our lives for the good of the other, then there's a significant problem there. Are you all tracking with me this morning? Are you all following me? So now the natural question is, what do I do if my marriage doesn't look like that? Like, what, what do we do if it's nothing like that? And I hope you're asking that because no one's marriage is a perfect picture of the gospel. No one's marriage lives up to what Paul just laid out. No one's marriage is this perfect example of submission to Christ. Like, we all fall short of that. Like, we are all sinners in need of a Savior. Um, and we need him more and more and more and more and more. And the fault is everyone's. Um, all of our marriages fall short, and it's everyone's fault. We're all people who need Jesus. We're all people who mess up. We're all people who are guilty before a holy God. Um, um, so maybe your question is, well, what do I do if I want to pursue Christ, but my husband doesn't? Or what if... What if my wife doesn't desire this? Do I, do I try to force them or do I try to shame them or do I try to guilt trip them? No, no, no. The biblical answer is that you model gospel-centered humility before your spouse. The answer is actually basically the same. What, what do I do if my spouse doesn't want this? The answer is, is you submit to Christ. And you pursue the humility of Christ in your wife in your life. First Peter three says, "Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct." So, by submitting to Christ, by serving in humility, the people around us—not only your spouse, but your children, the people in your workplace, the people in your neighborhood—like this is this is the gospel picture for all of life, not just marriage that we would truly model Christ-like submission and humility and service, loving service to our entire world, and that by doing that, what we're actually doing is displaying the gospel to everyone around us. Let me say this, though. If your spouse is abusive or destructive, the answer is not to just shut your mouth and be obedient. Um, some of you may recall, I think it was last year, Paige Patterson, who was the president at uh, one of the seminaries here in Texas um, got in trouble for, for basically suggesting that, that this, this teaching constituted a theology that no matter what was happening in your life, that you just needed to kind of shut your mouth and, and submit. 
Um, guys, that's not what Scripture teaches. Like, that, that's not a biblical or contextual perspective on these texts. Um, if your spouse is, is being abusive um, or destructive or tyrannical or whatever the case may be, there could be nothing more disconnected from the gospel. That's not a gospel picture. And, and so if that is the case, um, the answer is you need to call the police. And you need to tell the elders. You need to tell us what's going on in your life and in your marriage. God has actually tasked us with addressing sin in the body. It's not something to be silent about. It's not something to just shut up and endure. That's not at all what Paul's teaching here. Does that make sense? All right. Let's close real quick with a second word. The second word is intentionality. First word, submission. Second word, intentionality. Our pursuit of Christ should lead us to serve our families with humble intentionality. And intentionality is all about setting goals and making a plan. It's about the why. The question that was asked of John Piper earlier was all about actions. Do we read the Bible together? You know, do we do a family devotional? Do we pray together? What do we do? Um, that's practically what many of us want to know. What am I supposed to do? And I hope what you hear me saying this morning is those things are important. What's more important is who are you first? Because you can do all of these good things, but, but not be like being actively changed by Christ, right? So we have to start here, otherwise we can render some of these things null and void. That doesn't mean we, we need to not ask, uh, what do we do? We have to ask, what do we do? And the question is, how are you being intentional? So if you're submitting yourself to Christ, the question becomes, how do I help other people to see and experience the gospel? I'm submitting myself to Christ. My life is being changed by the gospel. What should naturally come out of that is, okay, how do I help other people to hear and see and experience the gospel? And this has to begin at home. So, so men, spiritual leadership doesn't mean that you become the preacher at your house. I think that's what a lot of us maybe think. It does mean, though, that you lead your family to the scriptures. Why? Because that's where we find the gospel. It does mean that you lead uh, your family to prayer. Why? Because God has done an incredible thing in that he wants to, like, converse with us. He wants to speak to us. He wants us to speak to him. He wants to know us and be known. What does it mean to lead your family? It, yes, it means to do these things. Yes, it needs to lead your children to this. Um, men, this isn't all on you to do either. But, but I do think the Bible would paint this picture that, that maybe you are the one who should take the first step, that maybe you are the one who should initiate. But you're going to mess that up, right? You're not always going to do that perfectly. And, and so wives, what Scripture is painting here is not a picture where you're just sitting back going, well, he's not doing anything, so I'm not doing anything, right? No, we're all seeking to submit ourselves to Christ, we're all seeking to submit ourselves to each other, and we're all seeking to lead our families and everyone around us towards the gospel, right? So we have to give each other a lot of grace in this. So you and your wife are one flesh, so what happens is you need to come together and develop a vision for your marriage and for your family, and then be intentional in pursuing that vision. So if I want my children to grow up into Christ, like if that's my goal, that is my goal. I want my children to grow up into Christ. Well, first I have to seek to model Christ for them. And then I also have to let them know that I am not Christ. I have to let them know that I'm not him. I want to seek to model him for them, but I'm going to mess that up. I want my kids to know I'm their earthly dad. And they have a heavenly father who isn't going to mess up. Who isn't going to let them down. Who's always going to be there for them. Who isn't going to die and go away at some point. Right? Who isn't going to like 
like, get angry sometimes when he shouldn't, who isn't going to say things he shouldn't say. They have a heavenly father who is perfect in every way. And I'm seeking, as their dad, to submit myself to him, myself to him, and to follow him with my life. I'm not always going to do that perfectly. And that's exactly why I need him, and that's exactly why you need him. And thank God I am not him, or we would all be in a world of hurt. I will let them down. I will make bad decisions. They have a heavenly father who will never do any of those things, and so do you. Maybe you had a dad that totally let you down. Like maybe you had a father that did not model anything that I'm talking about today. Maybe you had a father that was completely opposed to the gospel. I don't know. But no matter who your earthly dad was, praise God you have a heavenly father who's nothing like him. Praise God you have a heavenly father and I have a heavenly father that doesn't mess up. My father abandoned our family when I was in second or third grade. Like, I have no relationship at all with my biological father. And praise God, my eternity, my salvation, my holiness is in no way dependent on him. Praise God, I have a heavenly father who has extended grace and mercy to me through his son, Jesus who has given me a hope and a future. So with my kids, I, I, I want to lead them to the Bible because I want them to learn Christ. I want them to learn how to talk to God, so I'm going to pray with them and for them. I'm going I'm to give God praise and honor, though, that the salvation of my children is not totally contingent on me. It is totally contingent on God's grace displayed to them through Jesus. My kids are not going to be saved because we had the perfect family devotional times. My kids are not going to be saved because I had the right scriptures to pull out in moments of crisis or hardship. My kids are not going to be saved because I loved them perfectly. My kids will be saved by a loving heavenly father who has grace and who has had grace for me. So here's what I want you to take away from this. I don't do this well, and many of you don't do this well. There are a lot of times where, for me, this intentionality thing just doesn't exist, where I'm, I'm doing things, but I'm not doing things with intentionality, where, yeah, we're praying, and, yeah, we're going to the scriptures, but where's this going, you know, or why are we doing this? A lot of times I haven't thought those things through. And some of us aren't doing any of these things. And so today's the day that we need to start making a plan with our spouse for where does this go? What does this look like? So three questions I want to uh, leave you with today. Three questions. First of all, for you personally, what is your goal for your own spiritual growth? W which is to say, where are you right now? And where would you like to be? What do you think the Lord's leading you towards? What sin in your life is he leading you to put to death? How is he calling you to grow and develop in him? And then what is your plan to pursue that? Like what are actual practices, what are actual disciplines you're putting in place to pursue that? Right? If there's not intentionality there, don't be surprised when you don't go anywhere. If there's no plan, if there... 
What's going to happen? Secondly, what is your vision for your marriage? I'd be lying if I told you I had a vision for my marriage right now. But it's a question I'm asking myself. Like, God has brought us together. God has given us to each other. God has done this mysterious thing where we become one flesh, and and he's allowing us the opportunity to actually project the gospel out to this world. So what's my vision for that? Like, to me, I, I think about that, and I go, man, that sounds like a big responsibility that God has called me and my wife to steward. Our marriage. I don't know if you think about your marriage in that way, as something that God has gifted you with, as something that God has blessed you with, and something that he wants you to steward for his glory. And yet that's exactly what it is. And I'd be lying if I said, we did that well, or that we did that with great intentionality. But it's something that I feel like convicted towards. It's something that I feel pulled towards that like that Lindsay and I need to be answering that, that, that question or seeking to answering that, answer that question and that we need to put some steps in place to help us move forward in pursuing that. And then third, how are you leading your children to grow in Christ? Uh, so one of the things that was the case when I was growing up was that the church was where you took your uh, kids to be discipled by the kids pastor or the youth pastor. Um, guys, that's not who we are here at Covenant. Uh, We believe that the primary mantle of discipleship has been placed on your shoulders for your children. Um, That, um, praise God, um, there are kids who won't hear the gospel at home and who will find it in a church. Or who will hear it from other adults that love Jesus and are following him. But God's picture, God's design, God's vision is that a man and a woman would come together in union with him as one flesh. and, And that they would grow this great family and that they would disciple those children. That means leading those children towards Christ, modeling the gospel, declaring the gospel to them. So what does that look like in your family? What is your goal for your children? What is your plan to pursue that goal? And if you go, man, I don't even know where to start with any of this, there's good news. That's why the church exists. You're not in this alone. We need each other. Um, We need to parent each other's children, right? Like, Like our kids don't, only need to see and hear about the gospel in our home, they need to see and hear about it in your home. And we live in a world today where there's a lot of uncertainty about what my kids are going to find if they go to your house, right? Like we, we've, we've made a, a rule in our home where our kids don't sleep over at other people's houses. Why? Because your kids have devices <laughs> and, and they have unfettered access to those devices. I know not all of you. But that's what's happening, is, is there's this whole world that I didn't have access to as a kid that, that my kids suddenly have access to. And, and it would be unloving of me to just say, yeah, who cares? Right? So, so what is your vision there, and how are we coming together as the church to love and support and care for one another in that? to parent one another's children, to disciple one another's children. When my kids go to the class that you're teaching back there on Sunday morning, you're discipling them. You're teaching them about Christ and what he has done, right? So in just a moment, I'm going to be back here in the back. Uh, I think Jason will be around as well. Um, If you'd like to pray with somebody this morning, um, if you would like to ask some questions about this, if you'd like to go, man, I, I... I don't even know where to start with this, and I'd love to just sit down and, and just talk. 
I, I don't know that I have all the answers for you, but maybe we could put together some kind of a game plan for where we go. Um, we would love to do that. That's why we're here. So uh, let's pray, and then we're going to enter into a time of communion together. Father, thank you for your goodness and love. Thank you for Jesus and the good news that we find in Christ. Uh, thank you, Father, that this all doesn't rest on us. Um, because much like the Israelites, we mess up and we turn to our own ways. And so, God, forgive us. Um, continue to pour your grace out on us. Um, I pray, Father, that you especially give us grace in our marriages and as parents. Help us to have a vision uh, of your kingdom. God, that your kingdom would come in our marriages and in our parenting, in our homes, that people would enter our homes and they would find the kingdom of God. Um, teach us how to pursue that kind of vision in our lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen.